0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am extremely excited today to welcome Dr. Edmund Hayes to the program to discuss Agents of the Hidden Imam Forging Twelver Shiism, 850 to 950 CE, published in 2022 with Cambridge University Press. Edmund Hayes is a researcher at Radboud University in the Netherlands. He is an historian of social, cultural, and religious history of the medieval Middle East. He studied Shia Islam intensively, including topics such as the agents who mediated for the Shia imams, alms tax collection, and excommunication. Dr. Hayes, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. What inspired you to put this book together?
2: Well, uh, this book came out of my... um, PhD dissertation uh, at the University of Chicago, which I completed in 2015, and then spent several years really entirely rewriting it. Um, so the story goes back, I mean, there's a long version and a short version. I guess the short version is when I was, when I started getting interested in Shiism, and in particular of this period of the tenth 9th, 10th century, I looked around at the secondary scholarship, and I I sort of felt I was missing something. I was looking for a more richly contextualized picture of who these people were, where they lived, how they interacted with each other, uh, what the sort of major institutions of their lives were, and I couldn't find that. I What I saw was uh, information about their beliefs, uh, about intellectual discourses, about the transmission of knowledge. So there was some... Within that, there was some material that tangentially related to these things that I was interested in, but not uh, not really a not really systematically or, or as the main um, topic. So that was that. You know, I had been interested in the occultation as a topic of doctrine, a question of doctrine. But then I started asking much more questions about, well, how did the doctrine come to be? instantiated in the community
1: and maybe now's a great time to give listeners a little bit of background information on Twelver Shiism
2: yeah um, so there are several branches of, of Shia Islam uh, 12 a Shiism is the one that's currently in the majority in the world today so it's it's the majority religion in Iran and Iraq, and perhaps in Lebanon, though a census hasn't been made there since 1932. Um, <clears throat> Shia Islam broadly is an answer to the question who has authority in Islam after the death of the Prophet Muhammad? And Twelver a shiism answers that question by saying a authority is held within a specific lineage of the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad through his daughter Fatima and his cousin um, Ali ibn Abi Talib. And it's a sequence of these descendants then going up to uh, the 11th Imam who died in 874 and then the 12th Imam who is a sort of messianic figure who's said to be in occultation. So he's he's not visible, uh, but he's somewhere out there guiding the Muslim community. And that's the, the these are the 12 imams uh, that the name 12 has come from.
1: And the book begins with the death of the 11th imam, Imam Hassan al-Askari. And you outline the problems that the imami community faces at this point. What were they? So
2: this the imamate of al-Hassan al-Askari had been a stormy, short-lived affair. He was an imam for um, six years. He was quite a young man in his twenties, um, and he had not been the only, only candidate for imamate. There were two other candidates for imamate when his brother, when his father died, uh, or, or towards the end of his father's life. The first was his elder brother Abu Ja'far Muhammad, who predeceased his father a couple of years before his father died. The other was Ja'far, um, who claimed to be the rightful Imam and continued to press his case to be the Imam throughout Al Hassan's Imamate. Uh, so this this really was a di- disruptive um, element. It's difficult to know quite how disruptive. Sources say that the followers of Ja'far, this sort of alternative candidate for the Imamate during al-Hassan's life, sources say that they, they were a real minority. It's difficult entirely to be sure uh, ever with, with issues like this, because of course you would minimalize the, um, the opposition But certainly it was enough that by the time al-Hassan died, uh, these questions resurfaced and the community was already destabilized by the time al-Hassan died. And then when al-Hassan died, he died apparently with no heir. So there was no visible candidate to succeed him in what had become the most common pattern of succession, father to son. There was his brother, but he had been fighting with his brother. So the people who had... Um, supported the in- incumbency of al-Hassan, were, had a vested interest against Jafar. They sort of founded their uh, interests o- in opposition to him, and so it was difficult for them to to sort of eat their words and say that, yes, he was the the um, true successor to al-Hassan. And so you had a situation where the most obvious candidate for the imamate, Jafar, was not acceptable to you know the people who were Uh, in power or were at the center of the community. And so that was the real crisis of 874. Who should be the imam?
1: Right, and now uh, as you repeatedly call him in the book and as he's known among 12 Shia, generally he's known as Jafar the liar.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: And so what does the community do in this situation?
2: So um, I would say as some, some people in the community did continue to believe that Jafar was a good, good, uh, a good person, including his descendants. There are the Naqavi Sayyids, who I believe still are relatively prominent in India, who, for whom Jafar is a, you know, a venerated figure. So, but yeah, his, his nickname in the, the kind of polemic tradition is Jafar the liar, as you say. so a number of things happen within, uh, well, initially within 24 hours of the death of al-Hassan al- al-Haskari and then in the first couple of years after the death. In Within 24 hours, there's an immediate contestation over uh, two things. One is who does the rituals, the death rituals associated with the dead imam? And the second is who... Uh, has claim on the property of the Imam and the Imamate. And I would slightly separate those two things out what belongs to the Imam as a private individual and what belongs to the Imamate in the form of maybe we can call them waqf, you know, endowments or proto waqf. It's difficult to say exactly what they are. Um, so, uh, oh, and then the third, I guess, another one is um, then who is the Imam and how do we decide who the Imam is? um in terms of the um, the property we have interesting anecdotes that say things like when the news of the uh, uh, 11th Imam's death came out um, Jafar the liar straight straight went straight to the house and he put seals on all the, the all the prop valuable property and he locked the door um, so yeah you get a sense that okay this is a spiritual position perhaps a position of religious guidance, but it's also um, the uh, yeah succession to a great family a rich family a claim that comes with power and material uh, you know material property with it um, and that is that intensifies when the mother of al Hassan al askari she also lays claims to the property, and it appears that she might um, do so because she says there is a child that her son Al Hassan Al askari had a child, and that she is is uh, the guardian of the child. So there's, at any rate, what we can be certain of is there is a property dispute, and it lasts for about two to two to four years, and it goes to the courts. The the courts of of the, the Abbasid caliphs who are on paper supposed to be the great enemies, the hated usurpers of, uh, of, of the position of the imams, the, the right, rightful position of the imams. So uh, again, within the first 24 hours, we see a, the, the importance of, of praying over the corpse, washing the corpse. These are things that are said in the Shia tradition to point to who is the right, rightful imam. Uh, and there are various narratives it's very difficult in fact to piece together what really happened and a lot of what I 'm doing in the book is not necessarily saying here here are the facts of the case in some cases I do I do push one answer more than others. Um, but often it's just here are a different set of conflicting narratives which each come with them a political um, message about who holds authority. so this one person. Uh, this person washed the corpse, or w- this person said a prayer of the corpse thats is putting that person and their affiliates in a position of of greater authority and that um, I, that uh, then also links to this third question of who is the who is the imam and there are a number of different people there there are these sort of rather stock narratives um, stereotypical narratives. Uh, that we see where somebody is looking for the imam. They arrive in Samarra, which is where the imam's house was at that time. Uh, Samarra was the capital of the caliphate and the caliphs had demanded that the imams live close to them there. Um, And so we have these Shia believers arriving in Samarra and sometimes they're carrying money that they want to pay to the imam or they just want to find out who is the imam. And there are different answers. Some people say ja- Jafar, some people say it's the concubine of, uh, or, the, or rather the concubine of al-Hassan al Askari is carrying a child, or uh, we have the development of the idea that there was a child born before the death of al-Hassan al Askari, And so, yeah, there's, there are these, these multiple conflicting narratives about who the imam is um, and how, how they prove their authority.
1: And the dominant 12-er Shi'i tradition today uh, stood by the idea that there was a son born before the death of Imam al-Askari.
2: Exactly, yeah. We have a a few competing accounts about a hidden child. So that idea seems to develop pretty early. But even then, the followers of the idea that there is a hidden child of Tu'al-Hasan al-Askari have this... this, uh, uh, disagreement between, you know, who the identity of the mother is and, um, yeah, whether whether it's born, the, the child is born before or after. Um, and, and some of the identity of the mother also brings up the question of um, freedom or unfreedom. There's one account that it's a free woman and another is a concubine, so a, a slave woman. Um, which is ultimately the sort of the canonized account. And and there are different names associated with these women as well. Some say the what, mother of the imam is Saqil, some say Narjis.
1: You mentioned the city of Samara. And before we get into the discussion of the agents, I thought we could talk a little bit about the cities that play a key role in the imami community at this time, because they also play a very key role in the book that I thought... I Thought was very exciting. Uh, so, you talk about Samara in what is uh, currently Iraq. You talk about Qom, in which it, where, uh, is in modern day Iran, excuse me. Uh, you talk about Baghdad in modern day Iraq, and you talk about Kufa in modern day Iraq. Could you kind of link these four cities together and what roles they played for the community at that time?
2: Sure. Well, broadly, in the history of early Shiism, um, you see a shift of where Shiism is from Kufa to Baghdad and Qum. Um, Kufa was the place where Ali ibn Abi Talib the, the man who's canonized as the first Imam um, ran his caliphate it was the capital of his caliphate um, and His, his also where Al Hussein, his grand, uh, his son who um, uh, launched an unsuccessful rebellion. He was travelling to Kufa to meet up with his followers there, and many of the early um, scholars and key figures in the in the Shia community were based in Kufa. Um, By this time, by the late. Ninth century, early 10th century the shift away from Kufa had really uh, been accomplished, at least that's what I see from my sources when it's uh, surprising really, even though this shift is visible earlier, but it's surprising how few of the key figures who are really um, foundational in the idea of this hidden imam being the, Im- uh, the real imam the true imam, how few of them are based in Kufa and what is central in um, what what is central the central axis on which the new twelve community is forged is an, uh, the um, relationship between agents of the imam who are based in Iraq, so but uh, Samarra but also Baghdad, which is pretty close to Samarra, and then Qum and in Qom... Uh, al is a town that's already by this time famous for the preservation of traditions uh, of the hadith of the Imams.
1: After the death of the 11th Imam, we have a part of the community supporting his brother Jafar, and we have part of the community supporting the idea that there was a son born who is the rightful Imam, who is now hidden from the community. And these agents develop as representatives of the hidden imam, who are these agents?
2: Yeah, well, I should probably now um, just mention a, a key bit of terminology in the book, which is the difference between agents and envoys. So I use the word agent to translate the Arabic word wakil, which means somebody who is entrusted, entrusted with a particular task. Um and they are men who have been working for the imams for the last several generations. Um, in particular, they've got two major roles. One is uh, being responsible for money that is collected in the name of the imams. So the arms taxes, the zakat and the humps, which is collected particularly for the imams. Also, probably they might well have some role in distributing it to the needy and the deserving that the imam is is giving money to, though we see less of that in the sources. Um, The other main role these agents have is um, bringing messages to and from the imam. So requests to the imam, requests for information, requests for blessing, and then information coming from the imam. So instructions, messages, orders, uh, prayers, that kind of thing. So those are the agents. The agents are exist both they exist base mainly during the lifetimes of the imams. The envoys are agents. They are a subset of agents, but they are um, the the word envoy. I use to translate the Arabic word safir, which means someone who travels to and fro. Uh, again, doing the business on behalf of someone. It's also the in modern Arabic, it means ambassador. It's it's the word that the ambassador and embassy is used. But it's it's uh, you know in terms of meaning, the words agent and envoy are very are very similar. But in the early she early twelve tradition, the word envoy comes to mean something very specific, and that is someone who. Um, embodies supreme authority within the Shia community because they are the intermediary of the hidden imam. So the imam is hidden. The imam can't be accessed by everyone, but he is not totally absent. He is still, for a period of time, sending messages to these envoys who then uh, transmit those um Messages to the community, and likewise people can write questions to the imam um, so that is the conception of envoy and broadly, the argument of the book is that the uh, the idea of envoy the office of envoy does not um, does not emerge immediately right there is no uh, supreme authority in uh, who's mediating for the hidden imam right from the death of al-Hassan al Askari, but it, the idea of it, and presumably some kind of office as well, develops gradually, and it develops because in this great moment of crisis, when there's no imam, people, oh, apparently, uh, people don't know who the imam is, and there are mu- mu- uh, there are, the, the community are fighting, and there are uh, numerous different ideas about who should be the imam, and what, what imam it means at this moment. At that moment... It's these agents who've been practically embodying imamic authority by bringing letters out, for example, from to Qum and saying this is what the imam says, and then likewise bringing things back to the imam. They are um, a figure of continuity and that um, the new creation of a system of authority uh, in the community in in the absence of an imam is, um, you know, really centers on these the, the, the idea of this agent who, you know, is at this familiar face for the community. Now, exactly what kind of um, institutions were practically on the ground uh, at any point in the first decades after the de- death of al-Hassan al-Askri is, is very difficult, Uh that clearly, there's a lot of back projection going on. There is a canonized vision of these four, um, a sequence of four envoys um, from 874 until 940. Um, that does not, that that canonized sequence does not emerge immediately. There's a mention of it in N'amani's Kitab al-Ghaybah. He mentions them in, in, that's written in 950. But we don't have all the names of them until... Um, a later book, uh, Ibn Babawayh's book, uh, which is written around 981. So it takes about a century for this idea of these four envoys to to really f- reach something like its can- canonical form. And there's a lots of steps along the way that are, luckily for us, visible in the what the Twelvers have preserved uh, f- for for one reason and another.
1: Right. So you mentioned the four envoys. At this point, could you talk about who the four envoys were? Uh,
2: we don't really know who the first two envoys are, actually. Um, there's very little information in them beyond beyond the, the fact that they are envoys. So there's, as I said, there's a sequence of four men. Um, the uh, I would say the first and the last don't really look like they're doing something like the canonical picture would would want them to. Um, so really the center of this story is about the second and the third of this canonical sequence. Um, the first two of these men are father and son. Uh, the father, Uthman ibn Sa- Saeed al-Amri, and his son, Abu Ja'far al-Amri. Um, Uthman ibn Sa'id. so the father... Of the of the two amris was clearly an agent during the lifetime of Al Hasan Al Askari, and in and they and the canonical um, narrative uh, that I think are, are a little later uh, in this kind of early period, this early century when these are ideas. Um, Developing the the sort of canonical position as it crystallizes is that yeah he's the first he's the first envoy and then he gives his his envoyship to his son. However, so we have that we have that um, uh, report in our sources. What we don't have is any record of his activities as envoy. We never see him. um, We never him see him carrying letters to and from the imams, collecting money. Uh, explicitly we do for his son and 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 then for the next um man ibn rawah and Abakhti. um and then again for the last of these men who's only in his place for about two years um we don't see re- him really doing anything and then uh some people deny his position and then he dies and the this position of envoyship uh evaporates basically and um Well, we can talk about why that happened on Arta later. But yeah, so these first two then, we don't really know who they are other than that they're they're envoys. They don't really seem to write books. So they they don't really look like scholars. We don't really have any other biographical information. The sources say uh, of the father of these two Amris that he khedema, he served the imam. So I don't know if that means he's a servant or if he just served in the sense of he was an agent, uh, they have the uh, nickname al-Zayyat or a Saman, which means the butter seller or the oil merchant or something like that. So that could point to the, the fact they have a professional life outside their service of the imam, or it could be a family name or it could be a nickname, which we do see. We see um, in this secretive environment of, you know, the persecuted circles of Shi'ism under the Abbasid Caliph, we do see nicknames quite commonly, like these are, are monikers that disguise their real activities. So that's also a possibility. So, yeah, we really don't know where these people emerge from, other than they're just doing jobs for the Imams. The third of the canonical envoys, however, there, there's a difference. He is a, a Nabati. Ibn Ruhin al-Bakhdi. He's an al which is a, a, a family of prominent theologians, um, um, and scholars. uh and he's also a heavily involved in the Abbasid court. Um, at uh, he's is you know he's a he's a bureaucrat. He's an administrator. He's rich. He's powerful. Um, and he's, he's crucially for, for historians, he's mentioned in non Shi sources, which just gives us a little handle on uh, the fact that, you know, he exists, he's visible uh, beyond this kind of small secretive world.
1: So maybe before we move on, could you maybe talk about the canonical picture of the envoys that you mentioned? What are they doing exactly? How are they communicating with the community? How are they using their authority in the community?
2: Sure. Well, the the, um, canonical picture emphasizes the continuity with pre and post occultation, uh, you know, before when you have visible imams and the community can ask their questions too, and after when there's a hidden imam, but still, it's trying to project the image that the community could still have guidance. There are structures of guidance in the community. That's one aspect. The other aspect is it's epistemological rather than institutional. Um, and also based on continuity, the idea that, um, uh, okay, that there, the reason we know there is an imam is because these envoys uh, existed and were in touch with him, and provided many reports and letters um, that showed that the imam was was there. Um, so the the for uh, epistemological purposes, the twelve uh, ers the early 12ers want to prove that there are so many reports about the existence of the hidden imam that it's uh, unreasonable to say that he didn't exist. Um. So that that's. That's really the the main function of the envoys for the for the tradition um historically what they were doing as they say it's harder and um you know the for the epistemological purpose we we just need to know that um there were these men uh the hidden imam wrote letters very often that is a key the key mechanism they wrote letters. Um, people also wrote letters to the hidden imam there are for example theological and legal uh, questions that the, the people send to the imam and the imam then issues a response uh, um, with the answers to these showing that he's provi- pro- providing guidance and not only guidance but it's, it's of the right quality the kind of knowledge that they're used to getting from the imam um, so that yeah, that's the that's the traditional um, view of the, of this men that they're there on the ground, uh, bringing letters to and from the hidden imam.
0: slash NBN50
1: to get 50% off. And so you mentioned the death of the final envoy after just two years of being the envoy of the hidden imam. Could you take us back to that? Um, sure.
2: Again, we don't know much about this figure uh, other than he's appointed by the um, previous envoy. Um there are accounts within the shia tradition or the broad Shia tradition so in the book i not only look at more canonical 12 accounts i also look at um some uh sort of what i normally consider heterodox shia texts from the Nusayri community from a, a guy called hasibi who uh does accept twelve imams and does accept to some extent the authority of these envoys. So offers a useful um, alternative view where it, where he is producing knowledge about the occultation, but he's, he doesn't necessarily follow the party line of, of twelve. Well, what it, what is becoming uh, orthodoxy, um, and he includes an account that. Um, yeah there's a bunch of people who just don't accept the As-Samuris, well um this fourth this fourth envoy's uh position and clearly um there's a certain anxiety with the the very idea of a non imam standing in for an imam um so under the envoyship of the third of these envoys ibn Rauhanabati, there's a great crisis where a Heterodox figure called Ashal Mahani is claims to be. Um, we're not exactly sure what what he claims to be. He um, he, he claims to be some somehow a representative of either the Imam or the envoy, uh, and he also seems to claim to be something like a prophet or um or an embodiment of of God's guidance himself. Uh, this is. This is not only a private scandal in the imami community, but it's a public scandal, and he's executed by the caliph, by the Abbasid caliph, who gets involved. Um, there are other, also other figures claiming authority, claiming to be Babs. These Bab means gateway, so the gateway to the imam, who are more or less heterodox, and perhaps because of this, the this n- not the. Envoys themselves, but the very um, question of the very idea of representing imamic authority is, is is seen to be dangerous. And you see reports that are from the um, the elite, what are called the sort of big men of the the community, um, who who just sort of uh, after the after the death of this fourth envoy, just say no. You know, no, we're not anyone who there are a few people who say, yes, I'm the next one. I'm, I'm the next uh, envoy or they're questioned, like, are you the next envoy? And, you know, it just seems to be a no. I, we're not going to have this anymore. Um, so uh, so that's I, I guess we don't really know anything about a really, um, other than he's designated successor. And then he um he, he, he doesn't have a successor in himself. And what is probably an apocryphal story is that on his deathbed, he has a, 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 he has a statement that he issues from the hidden imam saying, after, after this envoy, there will be no others. And anyone who claims to represent me before the uh, advent of the eschatological end days is a liar.
1: One thing that you mention in the um, in the introduction to the book is really that y- this narrative that you're telling differs from a lot of other scholarship on the era. Could you maybe touch on what other scholarship on the era is lacking and what you bring new to the table?
2: Um, sure. So uh, there are some good good studies out there um, I'm definitely building on um, you know building on a scholarship um, scholars like um, Hussein Mudarisi come to mind Jassim Hussein um, uh, said Arjomand um, what all of these what all of these tend to do uh, with the partial exception of Jassim Hussein are they primarily interested in theological questions? Um, and so, you know, even even uh, Arjumand, who claims to give a socio-historical approach to the Occultation, really is looking at what is the what are the ideas? You know, what are the theologies of of rule? So political theology, not really what are the institutions, right? Who is, what is an envoy? What is an an agent? Like, what is their day job like? What are the practical actions and processes that make up um, life, you know? Because I think, for me, authority is not not just an idea. Of course, idea is an important component of authority, but there are, um, you know, regular actions, you know, and expectations for action so one of the one of the expectations of action that is generated by the the you know the careers of the final imams is that you have these agents and that these agents are bringing letters and so that for many people in the community um the Imam is not represented by the body of the Imam, the visible, a visible person who you can see and say, Oh, that's the Imam. It's represented by a man who comes with a letter in his hand and reads it out. At a mosque maybe, or in a private meeting, we don't have much information about that. Um but so I think for me, if you uh, don't look carefully at the details of how authority is structured in practice, then you don't get it, uh, really at the question of um, how did the occultation doctrine come to be canonized? How did the 12 community come to be founded? So I'm really trying to sort of embody, look at, put an embodied picture of those processes, an institutional picture of those processes.
1: One thing that strikes the reader of this book and I mean of course you this was a development from your PhD so it's not surprising but the the amount of research that went into this book is unbelievable. I mean the the sources are so broad and you're picking from all over the place. Could you talk a little bit about the research that went into this?
2: Sure. That thank you very much. I'm always afraid I haven't done enough. Um I would say that I mean there's about there isn't that much at the core of it in terms of the numbers of books that I'm looking at there's basically five key book cause five key sources uh what I do do and what I'm quite um I guess proud of is um trying to uh look at all the variegated um Differences, and not just say because the I guess the typical approach to these these very different sources or or these very similar accounts, right, with subtle differences, is to sort of ignore the differences and um, give a uh, provide a narrative and then footnote uh, the differences, right. Whereas what I wanted to do is is read each. Uh, Each divergent report as a little mini uh, treatise in itself, right? Each each account, each rumor, each um, yeah, each story about what happened to the hidden imam or what happened to uh, in in, with these envoys is in itself an argument, or it's a political mini political philosophy of of authority. And so, taking each of those individually and saying, "Well, what does this account um uh say in itself um but yeah the i mean the the early books on on the occultation are um are well known right there's the well known discography. I didn't discover them, so there's um you know Colaney's care fee, which has a lot of account that's from nine forty there's uh, Nu'mani's Kitab al-Ghaybah, which actually doesn't have much on the envoys, so I, I didn't use it that much. There's Ibn Bebaway, uh, or Shaykh al sometimes called Tamam al-Ni'mah, which is from 981. Um, and then there's Tusi's uh, Kitab al-Ghaybah, which is from the uh, mid-11th century. Those are the main sources. Oh, and as I said, Hasibi, this heterodox writer, um, is Hideri al-Kubra from, again, the mid-10th century. We don't really know exactly when. Um, uh, those are the main kind of treatises on the occultation. And then added to that, there's the Shia bi- biographical dictionaries, which were a key source, particularly um, uh, Keshis Rijal. So it's not hugely voluminous, but it was a lot of work to go through, try it with a tooth comb and say, well, what are all the narratives about? the mother of the imam who she is right is she a concubine is she a free woman uh what are all the accounts about inheritance and to go through those and again and yeah so that that's that was the work that that that, that, that this sort of this comes out of
1: maybe now it's also pertinent to kind of uh ask you what readership you have in mind for a book like this
2: yeah, it's interesting. I'd love to uh, find out, really. I mean, I guess I was broadly um, writing a book for scholars that I hoped would be usable in a graduate student, certainly maybe even an undergraduate student context, for, for, for if used carefully, uh, though it is a bit... I do go into the weeds a bit, so, you know, I'll, I'd be interested to hear stories from the, the, the front about that, whether it can be used in a classroom. I, I think there are also, peop, you know, plenty of people in the Shia community who are interested in these questions, um, critical, no doubt, of my my position. Um, but, you know, also some people are very open to, to uh, discussing these questions. So I have had... Uh, you know, little hints that this book's being read in Iran and people saying, I had someone contact me saying, why didn't you use this book in Persian, a book that I wasn't aware of, you know, which was, it was a shame in a way. But, I mean, that also speaks to the cleavages in the field that really, um, you know, I'm hoping to, to, to do to better, to, 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 um, to, to bridge uh, in the future um so that that will be interesting as well to get get some more to see what kind of of feedback i get from you know people who are in iran or iraq or india i've i'm aware of various people there's a guy on twitter who was uh reading <laughs> reading my book and commenting tweeting about it so that that's all that would be that sort of remains to be seen really what kind of traction it gets
1: before i let you go uh I do want to ask you about kind of maybe a, a more in the weeds question. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've mentioned this throughout the interview and you, you bring this up in the book uh, multiple times. There's sort of a c- canonical narrative of the relationship between the imams and the abbasids. Yeah. And you challenge this really heavily throughout the book. Oh, good. Could you maybe go into that a little bit? This is a question purely for me <laughs> um, that's very
2: interesting that you picked that picked up on that because I guess that's still uh, in my mind that's still on my to- do list so it's nice to know that um it comes out as something that I'm beginning to to make inroads in. well, I mean it's well known that the um the opposition between the imams and the Ruling caliphs who who call them who are called also imam right a caliph is just an imam by another name um, the opposition between those is is you know is on paper very um, bitter in particular from this the Shiite side um, so for example there's um, there's a famous uh, trope in Shi'i biographies. Uh, particularly the later ones that all imams are poisoned by a caliph or, or on the instructions of a caliph, uh, which is you know almost certainly not true. Um, it might be true of Musa al Um and but then clearly there is a development. It's a, it's a it's a development that it's a trope that begins to appear and spread in in early Shi sources. Um, clearly. Imams and people of prophetic blood claiming religious authority were a threat to, an ideological threat to um, to the caliphs. Um, whether they were practically a threat depends more on whether they were actually, uh, you know, gathering followers, um, you know, stirring up discontent, things like that family members of the imams did did do that though so the sons of Musar and um revolted uh, by this period um the, by the late uh 9th century the uh, imams have been brought to um to live with to live in what's sometimes called house arrest in samarra so they and you have both positive and negative uh comments from the imams in the tradition about this uh in one comment uh ali al hadi the 10th imam says when he's brought to samaria it's like oh what a lovely place the climate's great here i didn't want to come but now i'm here it's lovely uh so it's difficult to know exactly i i think more work is needs to be done in exactly what the relationship between um the Imams and the the Abbasids. But certainly in terms of what's going on in this book, um, for example, in the inheritance dispute uh, about who should should inherit the money of the uh, 11th Imam, um, Jafar the liar is heavily criticized for resorting to the Abbasids and the Abbasid institutions, the courts, to resolve this case. However, the other... Disputant, the litigant in this case, the mother also does the same, right? And you, I mean, these, you know, living in society, you've got to use the court system. Maybe there was a, a, a intra-communal system of arbitration, and you do get little hints at that in, in um, you know, the way that the community sometimes write to the imams to say, you know, get. I'm I'm suffering. I'm in prison, for example. Can can you help me? Um, but we don't really. Yeah, well, there's no very clear smoking gun that the uh, the Shia had like a court system with, you know, their own courts to to resolve cases. Maybe somewhere like home, which at, some, at one point in another is like a city state, or sort of running itself. Um, but yeah they Shia must have used the court system they they you know somebody like ibn rawanabah bakhti was a you know he was a literal bureaucrat of the abbasid court you know and used his position to get his rival shalmaghani executed so this yeah it's clear, and and there's a history of there's a history of of Shia bureaucrats that you know should be looked into in more detail um, so this the, uh, you know the, the story must be more complicated uh, it can't be so black and white as as sheer sources like to present it um, but but yeah I think it's still an open question so I'm glad you picked up on that and um, yeah I hope hope I and other people can do more to, to answer that question
1: I absolutely love this book as someone very interested in this history, it's really compellingly written. The like I, I mentioned earlier, the breadth of the breadth of the sources was really fascinating to me. The attention to detail was really fascinating to me. I, I really, really appreciated the way you told this. Um, there is a final question I have, which is a tradition on the New Books Network, and that is to ask, "What are you working on now?"
2: Sure. Well, thank you for the vote of confidence in the book. And I have to say, I, I, coming from an, an anthropologist, that's particularly meaningful to me because, you know, I do want to be, It's. I think it's impossible to do sociology or an anthropology of this period, really, but I've been trying to think more rigorously about sociological questions, anthropological questions. Uh, so that, you know, that, that's, that's meaningful to me that it... it, it if it seemed successful to, to, to you. Uh, in terms of what I'm working on now, well, I've I i um, I've got a lot of... Uh, I've got my fingers in a lot of pies. I, I'm finishing up an, an empire studies project that, um, that was in at Leiden University run by um, Petra Saperstein that looks at um, the institutions of the empire. So we have a book... Uh, that is in its final stages that we're hoping to publish with Oxford University Press called The Ties That Bind, which is, yeah, about the inst- the, the sort of social co- uh, connections between people, Muslim and non-Muslim, with government or, or sort of more peer-to-peer within the Islamic Empire. Um, I've since... I finished that project. I've moved on to another project at Nijmegen in at Radboud University on water and the the ideas and the infrastructures for managing water in the medieval Middle East in cities in particular. And so I'm working on things like uh, how is purity, how is cleanliness conceived, and how does that reflect in the, you know wells aqueducts toilets um so that's really fascinating for me and that's very different but it's also sort of broadly connected to my interest in how normative texts ideas interact with institutions and practice um and then following that i i recently won an, an erc grant um so i have that will give me um Five years of research time to work on a project that's called Embodied Imamate. So very much coming out of this book and looking at, yeah, the material embodied nature of Shi'i community, identity, spirituality, um, and 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 also you know money and uh, things like that in uh, in early Shiism. So up up until the occultation. So that's very exciting.
1: Wonderful. And I'd love to have you back on the program once these things get out there. Yes, please. The book is Agents of the Hidden Imam, published in 2022 with Cambridge University Press. Dr. Edmund Hayes, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.